Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, with a message titled, God's Rest and His Word. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I graduated from a seminary that was, in its day, the first major evangelical seminary in North America to abandon biblical inerrancy. You know, it's a long story of how I ended up there. The seminary I graduated from also had a reputation of having some of the most excellent scholars in the world. But I knew, and so did my wife, that attending there could mean that I could become a skeptic of Scripture. Again, you might wonder how I got there, and it's a long story, but from one perspective, I got there by accident. I did not plan it, but I also got there because of God's providence. God had a purpose for me being there, and I must say, the precision that was demanded of me in Greek and Hebrew studies and in learning to pay proper attention to the rules of interpretation, including the context of a text, the grammar of a text, the historical background out of which a text came, along with critical studies of the manuscripts we have available. I mean, all of that has stood me in very good stead. My training insisted that I did not come to the text with my biases or my ideas and feelings, but rather that I could demonstrate that I could restate as far as possible the original meaning of the authors. But at the same time, some of my professors delighted in pointing out those areas where they thought the Bible writers made errors. And rather than shrugging the matter off, I took those comments very seriously. I told my wife, Kathy, that if my professors were right, I would be morally obligated either to never enter the ministry or probably to utterly abandon my faith. For I reasoned, who was I to be able to pick truth from error when it came to divine texts? And so every day as I left for classes, my wife was on her knees pleading with God for the soul of her husband. And I made up my mind. We didn't have the internet in those days, but there were plenty of books and articles available, and I decided that I would double read. For all the assigned texts, I would read a scholarly conservative text from an author that held biblical inerrancy. That is, from an author who could demonstrate that every word of the text was trustworthy and true. And to my amazement, I found that the arguments for the trustworthiness of every word of Scripture far outweighed the kind of skepticism I often found in my classes. And I also found that many of my professors simply were not aware what first-class Bible-believing scholars had written. And that freed my spirit. And I love to say it, and I've repeated it many times since. One of the things I learned in a liberal seminary is not to fear liberal theology. You know, it's only impressive when you never hear the opposing arguments. But I also saw then, as I see it now, everything but everything boils down to Scripture. Is Scripture what it claims to be or is it not? So consider Jesus' view of Scripture in Matthew 5.18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You know, Jesus was convinced of the truthfulness of Scripture down to each individual letter. This was our Savior's view. And of course, that view was completely grounded in what he found in the First Testament. God himself testified that when he spoke with Moses, he spoke with him face to face. And when Moses died, Joshua wrote, and here I'm reading Joshua 1 verse 8, this book of the law 
shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. That is, all the words left behind by Moses were to be committed to mind, and everyone was called upon to do everything that was written in it. No evaluation of what was Moses' opinion and what was God's opinion, none of that. You know, later the prophets, before they spoke, would frequently begin with the words, Thus says the Lord. There is, of course, so much more I can say. The arguments for authorship, the reliability of our manuscripts, the way to understand the various genres of literature that make up our Bible, and furthermore, the various styles of the various authors of Scripture and the very human nature of their writings. But I'm convinced that both Paul and Peter had it exactly right. So start with Paul, and here I'm quoting his words in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is, there is not one word in the writings that make up our Bible that was not breathed out by God himself. Yeah, human authors did write. But behind their writings is the very breath of God directing every word. And we're called upon to be trained by that. And Peter adds something very similar in 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So think of the words, no scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You know, often a prophet would speak after an action of God. Plagues of Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the the sun standing still in the sky while Joshua fought with his enemies. 185,000 dead Assyrian warriors around the city of Jerusalem all died in a single night. And ultimately, of course, the cross followed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. No prophet who told us about that gave us his own interpretation of those events. It's not their interpretation. It's what God told them about those events. The men who wrote the Bible were carried along by the Holy Spirit and thus said exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted them to say. Now, we've been studying the book of Hebrews, and we come now to two verses, verses we must not pass over quickly. They're essential. Remember when we last left off, Christians were warned not to harden their hearts to God's voice. And then in chapter 3, verse 12, they were also warned, lest there be in any one of them an evil, unbelieving heart, leading them to fall away from the living God. And in chapter 4, verse 11, they were told to strive to enter the rest God had promised. Not listening to the voice of God has terrible consequences. Listening to the voice of God has the best possible results. But how do we know the voice of God? In our day, I hear all manner of people thinking that the voice of God is that, you know, still small voice inside of them. I once heard a church elder say that he believed that he could trust in his heart for whatever his heart said, that's what God was saying, he said. You know, others in our day trust in the culture, sometimes not even knowing it. Their conscience has been trained by culture. But the writer of Hebrews has already been tipping his hand. At the very beginning of the book, he has told us that God spoke through the prophets. And then when he quoted scripture, as he does again and again, he doesn't do it the way I've been doing it. I often say, the writer of Hebrews says, and that's a good and true statement. But in Hebrews, we read, God says, or the Holy Spirit says, whenever 
he quotes scripture. In short, if you're going to listen to the voice of God, you're going to have to read and understand the written text of scripture, for that's how God speaks to us. Don't you be looking for an immediate revelation and have not read and studied and been trained by and learned the actual text of scripture. So let's read our text today, Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account. So let's start by making an observation. According to this text, the Word of God, which is what Scripture is, the Word of God has four characteristics. Our task is to discover what each of these characteristics are. Before I do, let me put to rest those who suggest that when our text speaks of the Word of God, that it doesn't mean the pages of the Bible. You see, the phrase, the Word of God, occurs 39 times in the New Testament. In almost every one of those references, with but a few exceptions, it refers to the spoken or written words, and only occasionally it speaks to Jesus as the Word of God. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is called the Son of God, but he's never called the Word of God in this book. And so we can say with confidence that when we read the words, the Word of God, in the book of Hebrews, it's referring to the Bible. So let's look at the four characteristics of the written Word of God. We begin with the first of them. It says the Word of God is living. Now, many times when the Bible refers to God himself, it refers to him as the living God. That is, he's not a dead idol. He's not a concept. He's not the result of people's fears and prejudices. So when it says the living God, that explains why Elijah's offering on Mount Carmel burned up and the altars of the priests of Baal did not burn. Baal couldn't act, but God can. The living God intervenes, he acts, he shows himself by his great power. Ultimately, he raised Jesus from the dead. So the word of God is also living in that it reflects the character of God. Even as God acts, so also his word acts. The Bible is not a dead book about ideas about God or rules that we should keep or things that we must believe. Rather, it's a living book in which the reader encounters the very God who wrote it. Companions can be defined as people who band together for a common cause. Their combined resources accomplished together what they couldn't on their own. Well, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the clear, reliable teaching of God's Word. But we understand this great calling is not a solo effort. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is introducing its new monthly partnership program called Companions for the Gospel. Companions for the Gospel consists of individuals across Canada who choose to pray and support ongoing Bible teaching in the form of a consistent monthly gift. The result, lives transformed. To find out more about joining Companions of the Gospel monthly partnership, its impact, and the exclusive benefits it offers, or to offer a gift today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Many people have told me of life changes that have occurred to them because of their reading of Scripture. 
I remember how clearly, as a very new believer, I was then either in you know my late 19th year, or early in my 20th year, but this has stayed with me. As a new believer, I struggled with assurance of salvation, and I was reading my Bible, and in those days, I was struggling to understand. I was reading the book of Romans. The argument in the book was escaping me, and yet I felt compelled to continue to read. And then I came to the end of Romans 8, and in verse 35, it had my full attention. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, it asked. Indeed, it seemed in my experience that my relationship with Christ seemed so very tenuous. I thought there were so many things that can separate me from the love of Christ, while included the temptations I battled with and how weak I was. I thought just a little wind blowing in the wrong direction will separate me from the love of Christ. But I continued to read, shall tribulation or distress and so on. And then I came to verse 38. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And then it added, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I stopped reading and I contemplated what I had just read. And I still remember where I was at that point in time. And I hadn't planned it but I got down on my knees. I remember my face was right in front of the wall and I remember saying, dear Lord, if this is what you are saying to me, it's good enough. And everything changed. I no longer felt tenuous in spite of my weakness. I had a living word spoken to me into my soul and God settled it right there. I was eternally his. It's a living word. It's from a living God who not only spoke, but who encounters us. To me on that day, hearing God speak about all my uncertainties of whether I was eternally his, those things were settled. The living God had spoken. You know, I know my experience will be different from yours, but I know that many of my listeners testify to similar experiences. It was so much more than a doctrine. It was the living word of God. Now, here's the second characteristic of the scripture, that it's active. Now, in many ways, that's the same idea as the word living. An active comes from a Greek word in which we get our English word energy. It speaks of something that is effective, something that causes something else to happen or something that's able to bring something about. It speaks about results. You know, one result which is consistent with the book of Hebrews is conviction. Today, when the Holy Spirit is speaking, says Hebrews, don't you harden your hearts the way your ancestors did when they were in the wilderness. That is, you can, as you read Scripture, and for that matter, the book of Hebrews, which is Scripture, don't you harden your heart. Don't resist the power that calls you to repent. Whether it's the call to repent, which happens frequently as we read our Bible, or the call to believe, or the invitation to gain wisdom, or the appeal to enter more deeply into the knowledge of God and to grow in the truth, each of these effects are caused by the energy that's exerted on the individual who reads. Don't think that anyone can read the word without an effect. Now, you might say, aren't there people that read the Bible and it has seemingly no impact on them at all? But I think you misunderstand. You know, there's an old saying that I think explains itself perfectly. You know, the same sun that hardens the clay softens the butter, is the old saying. That is, the energy is there, but the effect of that energy varies greatly. Some people, when reading the Bible, are hardened so much so that they're incapable of responding to God. They're they're like Pharaoh. In the presence of such a powerful word, their heart is now rock hard. Nothing can penetrate. That's the effect of Scripture on them. 
But don't ever think that there is no effect from Scripture. There always is. Now look at the third characteristic of Scripture. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. When soldiers go to battle today, they no longer carry, you know, a two-edged sword, so we need a word of explanation. In the ancient world, a two-edged sword was the sharpest weapon in the soldier's arsenal. But it was also dangerous because this sword could cut both ways. It could cause great wounds to the right and to the left. It cuts two ways. Now, perhaps I'm making more out of this than is warranted, but hear me out. Because the blade of the sword cuts two ways, let me suggest that the two edges of the scripture is that it both condemns as well as it restores. I'm reminded of the words of Hosea the prophet in Hosea 6 verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, he cries out. And then he says, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And in that vein, consider the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23 verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. There are some who argue that the image of a double-edged sword is the image of a scalpel in which the Lord carefully exposes the heart. I know that Lord exposes our hearts, but there's a world of difference between a warrior's sword and a scalpel. A sword's a weapon, an instrument of war. And the scripture is intended, as Jeremiah says, to break the hard rock of unbelief and disobedience into pieces. It's the cut of God that lays our rebellion to waste. Its cuts are fatal to our unbelief and pride. We will not prevail against the sword of the Lord. Now, I'd be remiss here if I didn't compare the image in Hebrews to Paul's words in Ephesians 6, in which he calls the sword of the Spirit the word of God. You know, in Paul's language, the word of God is deadly against the attacks of the evil one. Of course, the cutting power of the word also destroys our spiritual enemy. But we may not use it if we ourselves will not submit to God. So, living, active, double-edged sword. Now the fourth characteristic. The word of God pierces the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Now, first, a little clarification. Some have tried to take this verse and make it indicate that the Bible wants to clarify the difference between soul and spirit. And so from this perspective, soul is often thought of as intellectual, the capacity for reason, whereas spirit is thought of that part of our being that relates to God. But I don't think that's the point here. The point is that the Word of God pierces the divisions in the soul, and it pierces the divisions in the spirit as well as joints and marrow. Now, clearly, we still have the image of a sword, but the emphasis is not on the effectiveness of the weapon, but rather in what the weapon accomplishes. Indeed, the Word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I'm reminded of the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can understand it, he says. That's the point. The human capacity for self-deception is endless and deep without a bottom. The ability we have to justify our behavior as righteous, that's endless. I recently saw a video conducted with a man who served as a part of a hit team in a drug cartel. It was fascinating. This man had killed many people, and he'd severed their heads, and he terrified his opposition, and he said he was a good man. He said he protected people, and anyone could approach him with their concerns, and he would listen to them. The only people he killed, he said, were people that needed killing. And I guess he was the judge of who needed killing. See, I'm saying this because the human heart is capable of enormous deception. 
I've spoken with people who are committing adultery. By the time they finish their story, they're the hero of their story. And that would be true of all of us until we read the Word of God. Suddenly, the soul, the spirit, all of our body is dissected and shown for what it is. We suddenly see our lives as in a mirror reflecting our true nature. And it's then only that we see our sin and our desperate need for Christ. Four characteristics of Scripture, living, active, a sword, the exposer of our lives. Now look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give account. We end this section with an explanatory note. God speaks through Scripture, but he also speaks individually to men and women who read Scripture. Something very personal is going on. No creature is hidden from his sight. In other words, when we read Scripture, we can never say, well, now, this isn't applicable to me. No, no, my friend. When the Holy Spirit brought about the Scripture, you and your life were fully in God's view. You and your life were not hidden from him. And so the God who knows you far better than you know yourself has given you his word. Let me say it again. No scripture is irrelevant to your life. Some portions are easy to understand. Some require greater diligence to uncover. Furthermore, the relevance to your life might not always be immediately apparent. But given time, its relevance will unfold for you. Don't harden your hearts to the more difficult passages of scripture. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The pathway without the word of God is a dark path. And along that path are many confusing and misleading ways. You need a light. You need a sure word from God. You need scripture. If you are to enter into God's rest, here is the guide that will lead you there. Thanks so much, John. John, you know, one thing that's become true for me, but I'd like to hear from you, the strength of my journey with Jesus is directly related to the time I spend in the Bible. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, God has given us the Bible so that we might encounter Jesus in the pages of Scripture. I mean, you take away the Word of God from our lives, and whatever we think of Jesus or however we know Jesus is going to be defective. And so it is necessary for us to feed on the word. And as we do, we come to know our Lord and Savior. That's how it's intended to work. And indeed, in practical reality, that is how it works. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series in Hebrews, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John spiritual encouragement of Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants.